Welcome to the Black Psychologist Podcast, where we have conversations and give insight into human behavior and promote mental health wellness. I'm Dr. Kyle Osborne, and with my co-host, Dr. Jason Coleman, we'll discuss health topics, everyday life issues, and try to give you a better understanding of yourself, other people, and the world around you. So just sit back, relax, and hopefully you'll leave with some information that'll have you live in your best healthy life. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome to the Black Psychologist Podcast, also known as the eighth wonder of the world. We're back like we never left. Thanks for listening wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for watching us on YouTube. Watch us, review us, give us five stars. Anything less than five stars is, of course, uncivilized. I am one half of your humble and gracious host, Dr. Kyle Osborne. He is I and I am him. And of course, you all know I'm not flying this aircraft by myself. I'm here with the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. Dr. Jason Coleman, what's going on, good brother? What's going on, my dude? I like I like that hoodie, man. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like listen, you know, we're ready for everything at all times. Yeah, definitely, man. I'm I'm good though, man. Just uh relaxing. Of course, just you know, want to thank everybody that tunes in every week. Uh, we appreciate the support. Um humbled, humbled by it the same way we was after we posted the first episode. So we just thank everybody for hanging with us. Um, and of course, we appreciate all the feedback and the comments, good or good or bad, you know. So thank you. Absolutely. And that's uh, that's where I wanted us to start off with. Uh, we've been getting uh, a couple questions here and there, and I felt that it was important for us to continue that engagement. And there were uh, a couple questions that jumped off the page. So uh, one question that came in from one of our uh, our, our lovely viewers and, uh, and, um, and watchers from uh, King Jack 94. He says, uh, what up, brothers? Um, I know that it's been proven that music has a um, an important effect on our mood and lifting our spirits. So he mm-hmm. asked us, what song do you brothers play to lift your spirits when you're in a bad mood? All right. So um, for Interesting me. Interesting question. Good question. Yeah, really good question, right? All right. For me, um, it's two of them. Um, but I'm going to do like the one probably I listened to more recently. Um, for me, it's Jay-Z. Uh, I just want to love you, you know, to give it to me joint. So, yeah, that that's my joint, bro. Um, one, because it's just an up-tempo song, you know, produced by the Neptunes. And especially around that time, you know, you couldn't hear a song on the radio if it wasn't produced by the Neptunes. Um, you know, Jay just comes on strong. You know what I mean? On that song, on the, when they ran me in the system, you know what I mean? I can't even speak <laughs> the rest. You know, you know listen, you know, it. It's about to go down. Got six bottle checks, six bottles of Chris. Yeah, classic, classic, classic joint, classic joint. And for me, that gets me out of a out of a bad mood. Lifts my spirits for the reason that it resonates um, for me so much. Where it takes me back to like, I think I had just got like my driver's license. I was probably like sixteen, um, and that song, that album had just come out. Like the Dynasty album. Mm-hmm out and and listen bro i got my license you know for me that was freedom like i listen me and my team we had driving turning it turning that joint listen man listen give me that fact that gushy stuff like bro we (laughs) we was in the car 
me and my team, we hit, we was on every corner of Philadelphia, bro. Like we were traffic lights, man. We was in I all types of places looking for girls' parties, man. Definitely made out of some situations that I probably shouldn't have made it out of. Um, so yeah, that's that's what um that's what resonates for me. And that that song automatically uh gets me out of a good mood. I mean, out of a bad mood, lifts my spirits. And the um and the other one, a bit of an old school is um is MJ Rock with you. Ain't okay. with you, you know what I mean? The, the show to start going, you know, start moving. You know, it's Mike, man. It's Mike. Okay. So, yeah, don't, got a follow up question for you after I answer this. Um, right. I have a few, right? One is uh, I got to go with Drizzy uh, Championships. You know, that's just that mm-hmm. when that comes on, I don't care if I'm if I'm in the bed. It make me want to hop out the bed, you know. But but again, that's a up tempo, you know, gym kind of song. Um, and then it's Drizzy, so you know it is what it is. Um, I don't like everything Drake do, but you know he's masterful on that on that microphone. Yeah. Um, number one B is me is is my favorite artist of all time, Tupac Shakur, to live and die in L.A. Right, like that. <laughs> from listen, is what you just said, right? That brings me back to you know uh, riding around in the Cherokee, you know windows tinted. You know what I mean? Trying to win, bro. Is all I'm gonna say. I was trying to win, um, but good times, man. Um, and obviously, like, it's funny that we have this conversation because you know I do this in session a lot with with teenagers, right? Um, you know, in terms of helping them identify feelings and connecting mood and feelings to songs and what part of the song, whether it be beat, lyrics, all of that, that they, you know, kind of um, connect with and how it impacts their mood. Um, the the so it'll be it'll be Drake, Tupac, and then the last one old school would be Bill Withers' "Lovely Day." You know what wow. I mean? Classic. You know what I mean? We lost Bill Withers a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, but that man. dude, man, from the sound of his voice when it comes on the track, and anybody who doesn't know Bill Withers very well, all you gotta do is type his name into your phone and songs that you probably are not aware. Just the two of us. You know what I mean? Lovely day. This dude, I mean, you know, he, to me, the voice is legendary like Ron Isley. You know what I mean? So um, I got to put my man Bill Withers up in there, you know, Um, but, 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 but that's a great question. Okay. All right. What was your follow up question? My follow up was going to be, and I could go first to give you, uh, but I was having a conversation with my boy this week. And he asked me what my five top like artists of all time were, right? Like if I could, if I if I was going somewhere on a trip, and I could only take not five albums, but like music from five different from four different people, excuse me, who okay. would I take? And I I thought about it for a minute because, I mean, you know me, like I have very eclectic taste, so it's like I love hip hop, but I love other types of music too. And my four ended up being um, Tupac Shakur, of course. Um, Michael Jackson, which is why I, I, why I thought of it is because you brought up Michael. Sade, you know, um, in my fourth spot, I reserved the right to kind of sub somebody in and out because we, we were talking about whether it was going to be a group or individual. If it was a group, it would have to be the OJs. If it was an individual, then it, for me, it would be Marvin Gaye. You know what I mean? And honestly, that is a uh, kind of like an overview of of most of my musical tastes, right? Like I love hip hop, obviously, but you know, um, 
hip hop it didn't even come around until the until the late eighties. So we was listening to soul music before that, right. you know. Um, so those would be my four. But what would be kind of your top four artists? You know, to either change your mood, put you in a good mood, or whatever. Um, MJ, of course. Um, people may not like this one, but but Kanye. This is okay. this three. You know. Um, we're talking about music. We're talking about music. Yeah, MJ, Kanye. Um, do, 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 um, I think it, it's a toss-up between um, Beyonce and, and, and Janet because I put them both okay. in that category, right? Okay. Because one, they just got a catalog. Let's say, so if I'm going for a long drive, I put that Beyonce or or or, or like Janet playlist on, we good, right? Janet got a good playlist. Yeah, I actually think I like. I, listen, I like Beyonce. I'm not a hater. You know what I mean? But I I I think I would probably on a road trip. I would probably take Janet's playlist. Yeah, like Janet. I, I got a playlist of Janet that's like almost three hours, bro. All right. and it gets you where you need to go. Um. So Kanye, MJ, um, Pyto, Jen, or Beyonce in there. Um, Jay, I got. I'm gonna have Jay Z in there. Um, Good list. And uh, I'm gonna go with a group. I'm gonna go with Tribe. Okay. Big, bro, like uh, I love Tribe Called Quest. That's so, good. I mean, I mean, that's a good selection. Like I um. Tribe is a good would be, would be a good you know rotation. Yeah. If I had a hip hop group, I'd probably go with Outkast, but you know it is what it is, man. Yeah. I'll go with Outkast, Mob Deep, Woo. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's a lot of groups, man. You know, yeah. like I, I'd even go all the way back and and, and, and pull Boot Camp clip click out and, and dust yeah. them all. You know, but you know it, we could talk about music for hours. Yeah. But yeah, that that's uh yeah. So uh, King Jack, those are the those are the list. Good question. Um, yeah, good list, good list, man. Yeah, second question is came from from Marcy. Uh, she said, "Hello, I originally found you guys on a reel on YouTube, and I see that you're clinical psychologist. I am a junior in college and want to go to grad school to get my PsyD. I wanted to know was it hard for you, and any uh recommendations that you would make." My first recommendation. Uh, I'm going to deal with the questions in re reverse. My okay. first recommendation would be um, make sure you attend an accredited program, meaning a lot of these programs that they av advertise, I would say some of them on here, but I don't want to get sued. Um, especially, it's like a lot of programs are, are what they call diploma mills, mm -hmm. meaning like they will let you in with barely any application, you know, kind of um, uh, requirements, right? Um, but their goal is to kind of get get your money, right? Um, and a lot of these programs aren't accredited, right? So, you know, they may tell you you can complete it in a certain amount of months, but the bottom line is you need to make sure that whatever program you go go to is accredited so that when you're done with it, um, you can start the preparations in terms of getting licensed. Um, the second thing I would say was whether, she said whether, whether it's hard, right? Hard, yeah. Okay. Anything when we when we talk about, I, I I would say it's a difficult task, but it's not an insurmountable task, right? But there's certain things that you got to understand going in. Mm -hmm. One is your relationship state situation. 
should be as stable as you can have it because, you know, you want to have as much emotional support as you can. And what I mean by that is if you do have a partner, you want them to clearly understand and know the time commitment that it's going to take. Right. This is not high school and college where people get good grades and they study for a little bit and they're one foot in, one foot out. You can really not serve two masters in a doctoral program. Right. So is it a difficult task? Yes. Is it insurmountable? Absolutely not. For students of color, right, you have to do what you can do in terms of taking care of your self-care and expanding your social network, meaning the same way I found you and you found me and we found uh, 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 Ashley and Shamira and a whole bunch of good psychologists. Um, of course, we had other relationships with our, our, our students, but you need a tribe, right, because it is a lonely road. Right. Especially if you are a student of color, often because you will not you will be underrepresented most often or not. They're not in the program. And it gets very lonely, especially if you're out of state, um, especially if you have to work and all of these things that go along with it. So um, is it an insurmountable task? No. You know, if that is your passion and your drive, especially if you are um, a clinician of color, um, you should go for it. Right. But understand that certain things you should try to put into place um, before you get there. Good answer. Um, to the first part of that question, was it hard? Yes. Is it doable? Yes, also, right? You can absolutely accomplish uh, getting your doctorate. Um, I'm going to echo a little bit of what Dr. Coleman just mentioned in that absolutely try to get as much information as possible about the program where it's at where it's located so you can make an informed decision on whether that program is good for you and all the other different intangibles like location money all these are different things right you want to get as much information as possible so you know and be honest with yourself like if you're ready to take on this endeavor because again, this is going to be a long haul, right? It's going to be depending on your grad school and your doctoral program that you're involved in or that you're trying to uh, attend. In totality, you're talking about anywhere from 11 to 12 years of school, right? So sure. you need to be prepared for that commitment. And that's what it is. It's a commitment. You're investing in yourself. Uh, it is going to be difficult, um, like Jay mentioned, in regards to the time investment of your studying, doing papers, assignments. Um, clinical rotations are going to be in different locations. So you, it's good for you to try to get as much information as possible about what you're getting yourself into. Um, sure. people in the program, when you go to open houses, ask like off the cuff questions of like, Hey, can you work all these other different things? Like what you're at, like ask questions that are beyond the ratio and tuition, all these other different kind of general questions, like actually have a conversation uh, when you go to the open house with the current students so they can give right. you an answer so you can know whether this program is for you, um, money, uh, invest in uh, your self-care, making sure that you take care of yourself throughout the program or whatever they endeavor, um, balancing your time. All of these different things are going to really require for you to be very much in tune with yourself uh, and making sure that your support system is in tune. The recommendations, I would say, um, in addition to the one I just kind of briefly mentioned, is um, I would shadow people. 
I would shadow if you get an opportunity to shadow a therapist, a psychologist, um, maybe at their place of work or maybe in a school. So you can kind of get a, a sense of what as close as possible of what a day will look like. I did that right um, throughout just various different areas where there were psychologists. Like if you went in a program and one of your professors inquire, right, shoot your shot yeah. and say, you know, is it possible if, you know, that person works at a hospital or works in a medical setting or works like if you can shadow them for a day so you can kind of see what it looks like. Because what a psychologist looks like on TV, like on Law and Order and all these other different crime shows, <laughs> very different than what a psychologist actually does. And there are also different subspecialties, right? You got neuropsych, you got forensic, you got inpatient, you got outpatient, you got medical hospital, you got all these other different um forms and types and specialties of psychology. So I would recommend that you get as much information. And then if you have the opportunity to like shadow or sit in or, or something uh, with a, a psychologist, so this way you have a better idea of, hey, I want to do that, or I, I like the flavor of this, or maybe I don't like it. I don't want to take it to that. So at least you make it an informed decision. So, um, but it's hard, but I absolutely, um, you can absolutely accomplish the goal. It's, it's funny, what you said was a good point. It made me think about some of the misconceptions about what we do, right? Um, and mainly I was thinking about, like, and I'm not talking about the person that emailed us because they, they they probably have more of a knowledge base. But just in terms of like lay person's understanding of what we do, a lot of people are thinking like uh, law and order or SVU, right? Like, well, like some type of FBI profiler type, type stuff. Yeah. Or it's like Freud, right? Or it's either that, it's either the FBI profiler, Freud, or it's like the psychologist roles that you see like on TV. And it's usually like the private like practice. Type of romanticized or salacious kind of activity and they're always violating boundaries crossing <laughs> violating boundaries you know that would get them get get their license snatched quicker than anything else um so there is a lot of misconceptions about what you know what we kind of actually do on a day-to-day -day basis so um i think those are all good suggestions in terms of you know kind of looking at the careers right the different subspecialties um and yeah if you can find somebody to shadow that's an invaluable you know, experience. Mm -hmm. so, um, so there you go, Marcy. You appreciate you uh, locking in with us. Appreciate you asking a question. Very, very good question. Uh, to other people, please absolutely, you know, uh, reach out to us because again, there's a lot of misconceptions about what, psych what psychologists do. There's the, still the, the misconception and people don't understand the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist. Uh, right. And, you know, a lot of things people think they're just going to go to school, get their doctorate, and they're just going to open up a private practice. And that's not how it works also. So um, absolutely appreciate the question. Anyone else has any questions, feel free to, you know, email us, um, you know, DM myself or Dr. J. We want to provide you guys as much information as possible, not just about mental health, of course, because that's the, the ultimate goal is to educate but we absolutely want to provide as much information about a career in psychology if that's what somebody's interested. In. So we can give you, um, you know, firsthand information and experiences. So appreciate you reaching out, Marcy. Good luck in uh, your current collegiate endeavors. Good luck. Happy or congratulations on your uh, graduation, whenever that may be. I know you're going to knock it out because you are sitting here and you're watching and listening to us. So, <laughs> you know, we know the pedigree. We know what it's about. No, you're rolling with the winners right now. 
right, Jay. So sticking to uh, school-based material. All right, it's a new wave that some of these schools are starting to take on in regards to technology. All right, let's uh, so check this out. This morning, we're looking into the growing no phone movement in schools. Up to 95% of teens own a cell phone, and kids can receive about 500 notifications a day, many of them during school hours, which understandably makes it hard for them to concentrate. Meg Oliver spoke to a social psychologist who calls this problem worse than vaping. And Meg sure. takes us inside a school that decided to do something about it all. For students at Newburgh Free Academy in New York, the first assignment of the day, locking their phones in pouches made by the company Yonder for seven hours, including lunch. It was a bit of a shock for some students when the policy was introduced four years ago. I was ready to start a petition, bring it to the principal, like, stop it real fast. But no one signed 17-year-old Tyson Hill's petition, and now he loves attending a phone-free school. Why is this approach better? I mean, coming from a school where it was banned, but it wasn't implemented, I was still using my phone. I was still on my phone. Here, students walk with their heads up in the hall, socialize and laugh in the lunchroom, and focus on what teachers like Dennis Marr are saying. That's the beauty of it. It's a game changer. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's night and day. I saw kids' faces again. According to the CDC, in the 10 years leading up to the pandemic, feelings of persistent sadness and hopelessness, as well as suicidal thoughts and behaviors, increased by about 40 percent, while test scores, especially in math for grades four and eight, saw the biggest decline on record. While there's debate on whether technology, including phones, deserves much of the blame for these trends, social psychology. All right, Jay, what do you think of that? I mean, my first thought is that it would be something that's very difficult to implement, right? Um, but I think it's appropriate, right? One, I think before people start jumping out the window about, I can't get in contact with my kids, we have to remember that 15 years ago, you know, this wasn't even an option, right? And, and all the times before that, and we had uh, perfectly good m ways to make sure that our children were okay when they weren't in our care. Right. You can call the office. You know that. And I know that. They can call the office if it's an emergency. Right. So let's there's holes in the boat with that um, argument already. So let's not even entertain that. Second, what do we understand? Right. Without looking at research. Right. We can all understand. Right. That excessive cell phone usage is going to impact children's sleeping habits at times. Right. Um, we all have seen the spike in obesity. Right. Um, I think cell phone usage can go right on the shelf with video games when we talk about social skills, getting kids outside, all of those things, you know. But again, when you start looking at the research that's done now, they're going to be talking about some of those things, but they're going to be afterthoughts after they start talking about the impact of the cell phone use in terms of like a person's anxiety. Right. Um, and again, now I'm talking just in terms of anecdotally. Right. Anybody has tried to see what happens if you're an IAIC, if you're an in-home clinician, if you're in an IOP and you and you see a parent try to take a phone from a child. And what happens afterwards? <laughs> right. Um, and then I think the most important point, and I don't even know that this has been studied 
you know, that much. But my where my mind goes is learning, right? And test scores. And the fact that every kid, cell phones should definitely be outlawed in, in school because you can't learn effectively with divided attention. And a cell phone is the number one way, right? Kids have a hard enough time just with the stimulation in the classroom alone. Can you imagine a kid with ADHD or a kid with anxiety and they worrying about what's on Instagram and they have a phone in their pocket? Can you imagine? Like, so to me, that that's the more concerning point. And that's what parents should be concerned. It's the divided attention because the same way how you have to give your kid two or three prompts, right, to pay attention because they're doing this. And they're like, huh? What do you think the teacher's going through? How are they supposed to learn calculus? Right? Um, so, again, we can't serve two masters, right? Um, cell phones are great. Everybody should, you know, do I think kids should have access to one of these? Absolutely. Because with one of these, they can make a movie. They can make a music video. They can make a documentary. They have access to all the information. They can start a business. They can become a millionaire, right? Divided attention. It needs to go in the drawer after a certain hour, right? Um, so I just think it needs to be limitation on the use. Something that stood out for me that I wanted to kind of tease out from the beginning of that um, that piece was that the kid mentioned that there was a policy in place, but they weren't able to enforce it. Right. And I think that pretty much uh, captured the for a lot of different school systems where they're all like, oh, no, you can't have your phones out. You shouldn't have your phones and such and such. But how difficult and how realistic can you actually police? You have one teacher in a classroom and they have 20 to 30 students in their class. There's no way she's going to be able to police and it shouldn't be a part of her job description where she has to look over and make sure kids aren't using their phones. Right. Right. So, I mean, we have to be really practical. Like, let's let's be realistic. Um, what I liked, and I saw that that same, um, the pouch system that they're using, I, I can't think of the actual, um, the manufacturer of it, but that's the same system that they use at comedy shows. Like, I went to Kevin Hartstone, I went to Dave Chappelle's, and they have the same pouches that, um, that they utilize to make sure, you know, the content doesn't get out from the shows. And so... There's absolutely, I think, where people also get into, they try to have that argument in addition to the one you just mentioned as far as not having access, that it doesn't have to be an all or nothing, right? It doesn't have to be kids put their phones in, you know, the pouch, and then it's a dark period where we don't hear or, don't hear or see from them from, like, the morning to the, the afternoon when they get out. There's a way where you can have periods where they have access to their phone, whether it's at lunchtime or whatever the case is, right? Like it doesn't have to be like an all-in-numbing situation where you're completely off the grid with your kid. But again, we were able to get by 20 years ago when you and I were in school before cell phones, as far as like when we were like in elementary school, middle school, and we were able to survive, right? Right. The ways where you can kind of have, you can meet in the middle in regards to this. But I like that because one, that is putting the onus on the school system, right? Because that pouch system that they're doing is effective and it's not cheap, right? But that puts you like, that makes you like, put your money where your mouth is. If you're really serious about, you want to have the kids focused, you want to take the phones in there and you want it to go beyond just a policy. Yeah, absolutely. You can incorporate that. 
Um, something else that I, I always like to highlight is that, um, you know, you and I have worked inpatient, right? I currently work there now. And even with kids, like when fortunate, unfortunately, when like kids or adolescents have to come into and receive inpatient care, they don't have access to their funds. Right. right. So just like how you mentioned, if a parent or a teacher or somebody's trying to take the parent, take the, the phone away from the kid, it's like they go into they have this all oh, this just this bitch fit. Right. All of a sudden it turns into a whole ordeal. Things start to escalate. But when you come into the hospital, that's it. Right. The rules of the hospital and the unit is that you don't have access to your phones. So when they lose access to the phones, Jay, I've seen it in real time. Like I've seen someone come on a unit and of course the kid, 13, 14, whatever the age is, they're upset. They don't have their phone. So they kind of go through like a, a brief withdrawal period. Yeah. yeah. Access to it. But you know what happens on that second day that kind of ended the first day, depending on when t- what time they get to the unit, they actually see the other adolescents or the other kids engaging socially right. without their phones. And they're still having fun. They're still talking to each other. They're doing games. They're dancing, all kinds of other different things, but they're not in groups and individuals. So like kids, we all have this innate drive to be social, right? That's just kind of the way humans are made. And yeah, for kids, because they've been conditioned to um, be on their phone, right? They've been, it's been pretty much exposed to them since day one. From the parents telling them, taking pictures of them before they can even hold a phone to take pictures and blah, 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 to now they have their own phone. But when you remove it from the environment, they will adapt. Like right. I've seen a kid, the person yelling, screaming, I don't want to be by myself. I want my phone back, blah, 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 blah. To after he heard the other kids outside in the hallway talking, laughing, joking, that person adapted, right? right. They came out, they were able to socialize, and they conducted themselves in a very social appropriate manner without the phone. So it really does fall on the school system being more proactive and being more serious, I think, in regards to, all right, listen, we're going to have a policy. We have to really enforce it. Because like you said, the concentration, there's no way you're going to be able to compete with a phone. I mean, you have some kids that have a better tolerance and better, more kind of serious or whatever the case may be. It's an individual basis in regards to them not using their phone during class or whatever the case may be. At the same time, like the, the school system has to be serious about it. Like if you're going to take the phones and things away from incorporate it. I mean, listen, I, I, I think, I don't think it's a bad uh, thing. I think the school's got to do their um, homework and, and have the research, right. Have the evidence, um, you know, and then just put the policy in place because it's just like, it's it's one of those things where again, a lot of kids in the school it's complicated if you make it complicated, right? Because there's way more people at those concerts, or equal a number of people, you know, than you would be collecting phones from, right? Concert I was at had like over a thousand people at it, right? Right. Um, Everybody had to put the genre. Right, and on your way in, you put your your phone in that pouch, and you have. You have possession of the pouch, so right. nobody else is responsible for losing your phone. You just can't use it. And right after that, after you go through the door, if I'm a teacher, if I see the phone, now I'm taking it. You know what I mean? Because because you don't have it in a pouch. And that's very simple. Um, and there's no exceptions. And it is what it is. You know, you know what I mean? Unless somebody has a medical reason. And even at that point, we have a nurse's office. Right? And the nurse, when it's time for you to take your pill or whatever the case may be, he or she can notify you, right? So um, 
you know, I got no problem with this. I think uh, another benefit of this, again, because the kids will, the kids will get used to it. They'll adjust. They'll get used to when they come in, they know they're not going to have access to their phones. So they will adjust to the new environment, right? Like we know how conditioning works once something, a new stimuli is in, you know, is incorporated into the environment. They will adapt. I think also what we'll see is we'll see a reduction in some of these like these classroom incidents, right? Like on social media, we're seeing kids, the things that are going on in classrooms, we're seeing fights, we're seeing all types of unruly things. Kids are, you know, going off on the teacher just so they can get the views. Like there's been an influx of even more abnormal and defiant behavior. And I'm not blaming this on the phone, but you know, and I know people are going out again for trolling, for views, for all different things, right? right. Bullying has you know, increase the significant levels because of what takes place in, on the phone. Like whatever took place in an advisory has already made its way around. Right, right. <laughs> right, right. So now if you don't have that access, not to say that news still won't travel by mouth, but again, if it's not being captured on video, it's not getting texted to everybody, it's not made its way. Like you're, again, it's a way that the school is still able to withhold and maintain that sanctuary of like what's happening in school is happening in school, right? Um, a lot of different of that other different trolling and bullying and other different things I feel like will be reduced because you don't have the technology aspect, which kind of adds gasoline to the fire. So, yeah. Um, no, I, I like this. Um, I'm totally in favor of this. I hope more school districts get involved and adopt this particular policy. And uh, because the information is out there, like you said, you just got to kind of get through whatever preliminary studies and, and whatever empirical evidence you need to see. But no, this could absolutely work. Yeah, I agree. Man, I want to see how what it develops into, because I could see this stopping. I, I can see parents advocating for a bunch of reasons that I feel aren't valid, but I can see parents advocating for their kids to keep their cell phone. They're also going to they're also going to complain that they're not learning and about their grades. But that's what people do. Right. We just, you know, they're never happy. So listen, man, listen, if this was taking place when baby girl was in school, I would be totally in favor of that. Mm-hmm. So would I. You know. All right. Now, speaking and staying with school. Right. Uh, there was a recent article that came about uh, in regards to making friends when you have social anxiety. So um, I think social anxiety is something that um, a lot of people struggle with, right. especially in regards to because we've been able to kind of really become more reclusive because of our phones and technology. Like you don't need to be as outgoing or socialize as much um, when you can do all of that through your iPad, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever the case may be. So um, there's been a lot of, there's an article that recently came out that talked about some of the struggles and some of the things that can be beneficial in regards to um, making friends and making connections um, if you struggle with uh, social anxiety. So I'm going to go through a couple of the list things, Jay, and I want to get your um, your take on some of these things. The first uh, item that came about was fighting negative thinking. And so um, we know that negative thinking uh, makes social anxiety worse, right? right? All of those intrusive thoughts, all of the racing thoughts that, that come into play um, about being judged, feeling like uh, having that, that spotlight effect, all these other different things, the imaginary audience, all of these things come into play um, in regards to people not 
taking that first step of making friends or putting themselves in social environments and things of that nature. Um, so uh, that's one strategy in trying your best. Um, and it's not easy. None of these things are easy, but in regards to kind of adopting some more cognitive flexibility in regard to um, your thought process when you're going into a social situation or if you're trying to reach out and you're trying to um, make friends. What, what are your thoughts about that in regards to fighting the negative thinking? Uh, I think, listen, you know, how we understand social anxiety, you know, the negative thinking and the cognitive distortions are going to be a major part of it, right? Um, so the first thing I would suggest to somebody that has social anxiety to that point, right, would be obviously that they seek the appropriate treatment, right? Whether that's group, whether it's individual or whatever. Now, when we get to the intervention phase, you know, after they, because, because again, there's a lot of skill building that has to happen, right? You got to learn, you know, how to self-rescue, right? You got to learn how to be in an anxious situation and relax and calm yourself. That, that self-rescue isn't as easy as people think, right? They may spend months just learning skills, right? How to relax themselves, how to identify those triggers, you know, how to implement a skill, how to, to find a skill that works for them you know, um, whatever it, it might be. But when we get to the point of intervention and you've already did the skill building, what I suggest to people is that they engage, they borrow something from like depressive treatment and they, and they start engaging in activity planning. And what I mean is, you know, put yourself in a situation where you're more likely to get the outcome that you want, right? So you don't, you don't put yourself in a club, right? You put yourself in an organized activity where you have to interact with, with people and there's a sense of com camaraderie um, and you might feel less anxious about making an initial connection, right? So I always, I, I know there's some controversy going on in different places, but when I have kids that, you know, um, experience social anxiety, I always um, suggest like group activities, right? Like the Boy Scouts used to be a big kind of thing, right? Um, and the only reason why I'm saying that type of activity is because it's one team. Everybody is together, right? We are a part of the pack, the den, right? So we're all brothers. We're all connected, right? As opposed to a basketball team, right? Where there's the star and then there's the bench players, right? And there's fragmentation amongst the group, right? You want to put yourself in a situation you know, where you have inclusive kind of groups and inclusive um, social situations. So you, you look for those type of things, like those groups are out there. They're, they're, if you're a grown up, there are groups of people that like to go hiking, right? There are groups of people that like to go to museums. There are groups of people that like to meet up on Wednesdays when the met, when the weather is nice and, and, and sit in the park and enjoy nature, right? Though these are not gonna be groups where you're gonna be vulnerable for rejection, right? Um, you can be rejected in any group, but again, activity planning, you want to put yourself in the appropriate situation, right? But as, a, as, as opposed to going to a bar, right? And then sitting around feeling extra anxious because you ain't talking to nobody and nobody's talking to you, right? Um, or as opposed to putting your child on a, a soccer team when they've never played soccer and all the other kids have, and, you know, now they now they don't have the skills to connect with the other kids and they don't have they don't have the physical skills or the social skills. Right. So we have to put um, children and adults, you know, in positions 
you know, where, for lack of a better term, where they can win or they can see success and positive social interactions and all of those things. So uh, another another thing, again, a job, right? You know, put put yourself in a position where you have to interact with people, right? Not necessarily in an adversarial way, but where you have to talk to people, right? Um, so those are just things, some things that I would suggest once you get to the intervention phase. I'm going to tease out a couple of things that you mentioned, um, because in the article it, mentioned, it talked about um, setting small goals and then also practicing the social skills. So you touched based on both of those. I think in addition to that, it's also um, understanding that this is a very patient oriented kind of a hierarchy process in regards to you're not going to get over your social anxiety tomorrow right. not gonna, right next week. It's going to take time. You're not going to all of a sudden become, again, because you're experiencing a lot of these intrusive or some of these racing thoughts or negative thinking, whatever the case may be, depending on the person, you're just not going to get over that tomorrow. And it's going to take time. You have to be patient with yourself. You have to be patient with your process. You mentioned also, like you said, um, kind of incorporating yourself kind of gradually into like small environments. You're not going to, like you said, just all of a sudden go to the football game and you're just going to become this social butterfly. That's not the way it works. Right. It's self in like more familiar, smaller environments that are going to be less anxiety provoking. Right. right. Another thing is that, like you said, small steps, getting used to interacting with just one person in a room of maybe five people, as opposed to like trying to touch base with everybody. Like it's a very patient oriented process and you want to make small steps, small victories, like you mentioned, um, in situations where you're not going to become too overwhelmed, where then you'll kind of fall back on some of those avoidant behaviors, which are reinforcing the, the, the anxiety in the first place. So that's something that I think and when you're dealing with anxiety is that it takes time, right? It's not like how it is on TV, where all of a sudden you get exposure therapy to this, all of a sudden I have this phobia, you put the person in the room with it, and then all of a sudden, no, that's not how it works. That's very inappropriate and dangerous. Um, it's a situation where you're gradually getting into um, working your way up into what's, um, you know, what's causing anxiety. And then also, along with the intervention aspect, it's kind of getting into what was contributing to it in the first place, right? right. Because that's the other piece. Yeah, you absolutely want to get yourself more exposure um, at the same time. We have to kind of do some work on, okay, what was activating or contributing to some of these, you know, intrusive or negative thoughts or irrational thoughts that are contributing to the anxiety, right? It could have been a past experience to something. It could be some trauma. It could be a lot of different things. Um, so that is going to be work on two different fronts, which is going to take a lot of time. And I think that's something that people have to understand um, in regards to working, especially with social anxiety, because it's tough. It can be absolutely, you know, debilitating to a lot of different people. But if you're understanding um, that it's going to take time and it's going to be a gradual process, I think you're also you're taking you're showing yourself compassion. And you're also showing the process compassion in regards to trying to get out there. And if, if that's your goal, if that's where you're ready to be, then you're able to move forward in an appropriate what manner. I mean, and and just to kind of piggyback off one of your points, um, I think. This is where kind of social media can help out, right? Because um, social media, of course, can put a buffer between you and another person, right? Also, 
we have a whole community of, of people online, different places, you know, that are interested in certain topics and all of those things, you know, and again, it's another buffer, right? So what I suggest that the only play, uh, way a person communicate or make friends be online and through, no, right? That's a little, that's excessive. Um, but when we talk about a first step, if you're trying to make a friend, right, or, you know, interact with somebody or, you know, um, with, with conversation and different things, again, social media can help out, right? Um, because it can feel a lot less anxiety provoking to some people to communicate over Zoom, you know, than in person, right? Or, or they might just do it in steps, right? Somebody they meet in some online group somewhere, they might, you know, communicate through messages and then talk on the phone and then a little Zoom, right? But my point is, you know, we have technology, right? So you use it, right? Technology can, you can make a friend in another country, right? Um, I, you know, I know somebody, I was just talking to them last week, they had a best friend for 10 years, you know, that they just went to another country to meet, you know, last week, right? Um, and I was like flabbergasted. I'm like, wow, you know, you know what I mean? But obviously, you know, this is a, a person who, you know, they met somebody online and kind of like a group um, and they had a lot of the same interests and, you know, that relationship kind of blossomed and not, I'm, I don't know that this person has social anxiety, but what I know is if that's their best friend, then obviously the people that they were meeting in their face-to-face interactions, they didn't feel that connection with, Right. Um, so again, it just presents another way, um, you know, that may be less anxiety provoking for people to kind of initiate and at least start, you know, to, to kind of maintain some social relationships. So, Absolutely. I think that's one of the benefits of this day and age that there are so many different resources, uh, technology based, person uh, person based. I'm going to reiterate before we get out of here. Um, what you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation is making sure that you meet with a professional, uh, with a therapist, with a psychologist that's able to help guide you through this. Um, I get it. We have family, we have friends, and sometimes they can be supportive, but they can also kind of be intrusive in the sense of they're forcing you to kind of come out and that's exacerbating your anxiety, right? They're forcing you to come out, meet new people, come out to the bar with us, come do this, come do that. And understanding, and it's okay to say no to these things, right? It's okay to say no and say, hey, I'm not comfortable with this. And then seek those measures and the support and guidance and help of a professional. Um, You know, social anxiety, uh, we're not just talking about that romanticized social anxiety that people are talking about, like on social media, online. There are some people that really struggle with um, anxiety in different social settings. So it's important if um, you have these very strong, overwhelming reactions, or this is getting in the way of you being living a quality life that you would like to live. We absolutely are recommending that you get in touch and please see um, professional help with a psychologist or a therapist that's able to help you manage this process and help you make growth and help you um you know, overcome your fears and some of your reservations and things that are contributing to um, your anxiety. So um, it's tough, but absolutely uh, with help, you can absolutely, you know, overcome some of these uh, tough situations. So that's the only thing thing I would say about it is just to remind people that it's normal and it's common, right? Um, I I think I read something a couple of days ago that said more than 200,000 people a year seek treatment, right? Um, so it's very common, right? Um, so, 
again, if it's something that you're experiencing, you know, um, a lot of people experience it. So it's not something that you, you know, should feel stigmatized about in terms of and hesitant to, to reach out. Absolutely. All right, Jay, anything else before we get out of here, bro? As always, we always humbled and thankful for the support. So um, especially appreciate the questions. Love answering those. Um, and we're going to keep this thing rolling. But, you know, we appreciate all all the help and all, all the support along the way. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, you heard the word from the good doctor. Appreciate everybody locking in with us. Appreciate the support. Again, email us, DM us uh, questions, your feedback. We'd love to hear it. Yeah. Jay, time and everyone else out there. Wishing you good mental health. All right. Have a good one. All right, bro.